We had a collaboration with some Chinese com uh, Chinese uh, scientists. Here we have a vaccine. What is the problem? Get over it. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. I hope that it can occur in a, a civil way, and I, 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 I mean civil in a special way, I, peaceful. The biggest question, in, maybe in economics and politics of the coming decade, will be what to do with all these useless people. I just see the need for such a dialogue, and I see the need for action. I see the need for a great reset. We are 1,237 days into 14 days to flatten the curve. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Johnny Anderson alongside Melissa from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. Melissa, it is good to see you once every two weeks. How are you? I'm well, Johnny. How are you doing? Um, how do I answer that? Uh, <laughs> I'm overstressed and underslept, right? I'll just leave it at that. So, but I'm working through it. I'm I'm doing pretty well. Other than that, all things considered, but it is good. what it is. Yeah, it's it's all right. So um, we, we had all cut. We were all over the map in, in prep. If the listener only could have been purview to that. But perhaps <laughs> our main conversation, our recorded conversation will go that direction because that was a lot of fun. We talked about <laughs> just a little bit of everything uh, and it was good fun, uh, especially. Is it flat earth or is it hollow earth? Which one do you believe more or neither of them? It's going to be one of those things. It's going to be a question in uh, in the future. I'll just leave it at that. I'm not going to go. <laughs> too much into detail, but we will be talking about that sometime down the road. Both of them. The ho hollow earth is where you've got to bring your own ladder, right? I Well, um, that's a good question because the, the hollow... <laughs> how do I do this without laughing? The hollow earth thing, apparently there's lizard humans. I'm not joking. This is the conspiracy theory thing, right? The, the lizard humans live there and supposedly they live out here too, right? You hear the, the conspiracy theorists talking about how there's lizard people and everything running around here. If that's the case, then that means they already have a ladder. And so you don't need to bring your own. <laughs> I'm just, I'm trying to put put logic into this somehow. Anyway. You, think, you, you, you really do believe that the lizard people are going to let you use their ladder? I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess I just have to ask Congresswoman Maxine Waters herself. Because supposedly she is one of them. Supposedly. I don't know. Anyway, um, I have been, as I told you when you came in tonight, I have been cruising the news. I've been trying to avoid it as much as humanly possible because I don't I don't care about the upcoming election. I don't care what people think of Joe Biden. I don't care what people think of Donald Trump. I, I really don't. These these polls and these upcoming debates. Biden's going back in the basement. That's where his campaign headquarters is now. Well, is back in his basement. Uh, what what is so terrifying and boring and sad to me is that you call it an upcoming election, but Johnny, 
It's not happening until oh, November okay. a year from now. <laughs> I know. So for well, 15 months, yeah. are you kidding me? I just can't handle it. <laughs> I can't either. And that's all that everything is just jammed up with is, uh, is that. Uh, and it's I'm like, really? It's, it's uh, as you say, it's like a year and a half out. Do we really need to get involved with this already? Now, I, I try to be mature as I can be all the time. But when they, that gets going, I just have to put my fingers up to my ears and go la 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 la. Yeah, <laughs> it's like no, hold on. I want to put the awful. banana plugs back in my ears. Yeah. I want to go back to sleep until you guys get this ridiculous circus over with because that's all it is. Yeah. And as you have brought up many times before, Alan Watt used to say that if voting made a difference, it would be illegal. That's right. Mm-hmm. So what are we actually voting for? You know, I'm not uh, not advocating that people don't vote, right? I'm not saying that, but all I'm asking is, is what are we voting for? It's yeah. a simple question. Now, I, I think I got this right, but he used to give them these absurd wrestler names. He said it's uh, Giant Haystack versus Mountain Man. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's like, it is exactly that. It's a WWE or WWF, whatever uh, yeah. the world it calls yeah. these days. It's that. It's the fixed, you know, it's a Don King boxing match. That's uh, That's what it is. Anyhow, you were talking to us a couple of weeks ago about some foundations. And as you were talking to me a little bit in prep, I thought we would continue that conversation because these foundations, I mean, I think we can all agree that these things are quite a bit of a problem these days. Uh, and that, well, they've been mm -hmm. quite a bit of a problem for many, many decades now. And I, for one, believe that they need to be dealt with in no uncertain terms. But I do have access to that book, Foundations, and I do plan on reading it. But uh, let's let's get into what all you found in the last couple of weeks, and let's just kind of get caught up on it. Well, it's eye-opening. It was eye-opening to me because, like I said, I have heard Alan, he's mentioned foundation money and how foundation money and the people behind them, they control everything, and they've controlled things for years. And he's talking about this goes back a little bit to Carl Quigley's book, Tragedy and Hope. He's mentioning in that, in particular, this would be the organization of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the offshoot, the American branch of the Royal Institute of International Affairs. So you're talking about organizations which have a, an enormous amount of well, basically, they control politics. It's not like they have a big sway or they have a big input. It's, it is groups like that, and those are probably the biggest, that dictate the farce, the wrestling farce that we then are given to watch at our level. <clears throat> and so in Foundations, Their Power and Influence was written by Rene Wormser in 1958, and he had been an advisor to the Reese Committee, which was a congressional investigation in, I think, 1953-54 on the undue influence that foundations had at that time. And that was an offshoot of the congressional uh, commission that had just happened the session of Congress before that, which was the Cox Committee. These were named after the congressmen who supervised them, who were the heads of them. And so at the time of the Reese Committee, in the early 50s, they were talking about an, a sway, a, an influence that the foundations had on policy. Now, they, they were specifically talking about social research, but how it came into e economic policy and election policy and all across the board, all government policy. 
But what was interesting to me, and I'm, I'm not even halfway through the book yet, but what was interesting to me was that there had already been a congressional commission held on the undue influence of foundations in 1915. So more than 100 years ago, people were going, well, hey, wait a minute, who are these unelected people coming from big money, backed by big money? who are changing the direction of this country, who are changing the direction of education across the board from elementary school up to the university level. Who are they? So they investigated it. They do it again in the 50s. And Wormser wrote the book because he said the Reese Committee did an excellent job, but it didn't go far enough. And I had heard Alan talk about this book, mentioned it time and time again, talked about foundations, and it's just a book that I never read. You know, it's, so, it's interesting that, that they yeah. – uh, I'm, I'm sorry to, to interrupt. No, go um, ahead. But it's, it's interesting that this is another one of these – obviously, I'm not going to try and relate the two here, but uh, I'm just saying that this is another problem that's gone way back that we've just conveniently ignored every single yes. time. You know, like the, the crime thing. We were talking about crime statistics and, and classifications of crimes when you came in tonight also. And that's mm -hmm. another thing that's just kind of been pushed to the side. Oh, no, sorry, we're not going to worry about that. And this is another one. Well, I think part of the reason, one good thing here is that I'm reading a copy <clears throat> that has never been read before. It doesn't have, you know, there uh, there's nobody's comments in the margin for me to refer to. So I have to read it with fresh eyes, make my own marks in it, underline my own things that I think are important. But you cannot read this book and come away thinking that politics, the way that it's presented, and this is across the world, has the reality that we're told that it does. It simply doesn't because it's been bypassed. And it was bypassed, as Quigley said, Quigley said in, in 1966, when he wrote Tragedy and Hope, that the basically the elected leaders who we think we're choosing had been vetted and groomed, and that had been going on for 60 years at the time of publication. So I think somebody said it very well to me the other day when they said we were always thinking that something just got captured. Our government just got captured. Our universities just got captured. Well, no, I don't even want to say that they were captured a long time ago. I think it's actually built in to the design. It's not a design flaw. It's, it's the way it's structured. So that money and people that we never know their names, we never hear about them, they have control and they've had control for a long time. When you were talking about the, what we were talking about on the, in the sound check there, he mentions that in this book. I don't know if I can go right to it, but it was the, the, an organization that was very, very troubling to them was the Social Science Research Council. Troubling and in, lot, in what way? Well, be, the, at this time, social science, what we call social science, was a new thing. It was a newish area of study, and there were people who were speaking out. Like, there's a chapter here entitled, uh, if I can find it. Basically, it's talking about scientism. Is it social science or is it scientism that we're looking at? And unfortunately, I cannot go right to it because I've been all over the map here. But, okay, so chapter four is social science and scientism. And they say, foundation supports in the social sciences, just 
does take on special and serious importance. Though much of the research and teaching in these disciplines may have no relationship whatsoever to politics, legislation, or even public affairs, a large and vociferous sector of the social scientists actively seeks to redesign our government and our public life. It is difficult to understand how tax-exempt funds can properly be used to support the idiosyncrasies of these self-appointed reformers. In the face of the weakness of the controlling tax law, and Wormser himself was a, a tax attorney, which I have pointed out, it behooves foundations to exercise care and restraint. But they go on to talk here about... Um, I, This is a Professor Laswell, and I noticed that woman that I mentioned to you, Anna Harvey, Laswell is all over the Social Science Research Council. And he says here, this is Laswell, this is one of them, one of those experts, his own words in front of the Reese Committee. Part of our role, as the venerable metaphor has it, is scanning the horizon of the unfolding future with a view to defining in advance, the probable import of what is foreseeable for the navigators of the ship of state. It is our responsibility to flagellate our minds toward creativity, toward bringing into the stream of emerging events conceptions of future strategy that, if adopted, will increase the probability that ideal aspirations will be more appropriate, approximately realized. Now, this is a kind of a bureaucraties, blah, 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 but you leave it to Wormser and the people on the Reese Committee. They knew exactly what he was saying. These people are self-appointed experts who have decided that they know better how culture should be shaped, how government should be run, and they are going to get in there with their foundation money and make sure that it happens. And that was 1958. All of that sounds awfully familiar. We're presented with these these experts that know better than everybody else. You know, I, I've never been one to consider the, uh, getting into politics, I've never been one to consider the politician to be a very intelligent individual. They just get elected and <laughs> give a nice speech. But there's always been money behind these people, always. It's always going to be that way. I remember I read a book by the former director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. And uh, the, book was, yeah. the book was called Persons in Hiding. It was the first book he wrote, and it was written almost 100 years ago. It was written in like 1932 or something like that. Uh, and I have a copy wow. of it. Yeah, I have a copy of it, and it is, all things considered, it is still in, in pretty good condition. But I remember reading that, and he said in there, now mind you, this is back, of course, at the time of writing, he was talking about the 20s, the 1920s. Mm -hmm. So this would have been right after the time where you you were saying that these were established. He was advising the American public in that book in the 20s and in the early 30s, saying behind every single politician, there is a crooked lawyer and there is a crooked person with cash, a pile of it. Mm -hmm. And that's what it's always been. And that was back then. And now, if you're to take what you've got and then you throw in everything that they've done, and I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when you're on, everything that they've done with this Institute of Policy Studies with uh, guys like Samuel Rubin that, that started it, and mm -hmm. they, have, they have become... In modern times, they have become like, at least what I was able to read in, in Shadow World by Robert Chandler, they've become like this, this nexus point. They facilitate everything with all these interlocking uh, boards and, and things you were talking about last week or two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. 
Um, they're able to facilitate all of these foundations now, not just at the national level, but they do this at the international level, mostly yes. within the United Nations. And yeah. they set policy and influence policy across the world with these things, yes. with these these institutions, these foundations. Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, they I got into um, the lifetime trustees of the Aspen Institute last week in researching and I, I just focused on a couple of families, the, the Crown family and the Pritzker family. But the third lifetime trustee that I looked at was Henry Kissinger. So if you look at who the lifetime trustees are, they they have a they're different people with different backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. But what they're what they are all about is shaping international policy. And so you do see those interlocks. I haven't looked into what the institution that you've been looking into, but you do see them coming. They arrive at the same point, which is we're going to tell your elected leaders what they should be focused on and what uh, should come into legislation. All And then all the way down, you know, through into academia, in your media, it all works together. I shouldn't say it's a trickle down. It's like a, a glove that grabs you. Why is it that every time we start kicking doors open, we always find Henry Kissinger hiding behind at least one or two of them? Absolutely. He's, he's into everything. That guy's into yeah. everything. He, yes. just, he just went to China for a secret meeting on our behalf. Did you know that? He's, he's I what, didn't know that. Oh, yeah. He is 100. He turned yeah. 100 in May. I was listening to him do a chat with Klaus Schwab that was last year at, at, when he was a young man of 99. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah, young man. Yes. Um, but, but yeah, he, he's still, uh, he's still playing the, uh, you know, the diplomat and, and everything else. Mm -hmm. I, I thought, man, don't you think it's time to just hang it up? I mean, you're a hundred, but that Does guy, he has been behind, I, I've read books going back into, um, the, like they were written in the late sixties and how he was influencing policy at the executive level back then. You know, mm -hmm. I, one of the books I was talking about uh, when I was looking into the, um, uh, the genesis of the drug epidemic in the West. He was the guy that was stifling all the investigations at the federal level into where all of that uh, drug trafficking was actually coming from. He didn't want anybody looking into it because that mm -hmm. would have hurt our international relations. And right. he's still, he's still one of our non-official or unofficial diplomats still yeah. to this day. He's 100. Now, I, yeah. I argue he's still more lucid than our current president of the United States. I heard him speak at the um, the World Economic Forum meeting this past year. Uh, he did. It was a video recording, but uh, that we watched the same one because that was yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. He was he was yeah. still lucid. I mean, he might have been a little raspy in his his deliverance there, but he was still lucid. I'll, I'll give him yeah. that. But yeah. he's still he's still in there. <laughs> No, it, it is amazing. But you made a really good point a few minutes ago when you said that this is what people should be looking at. And we, we should be saying, no, that this can't be. The, the trouble is the media, especially the media, has so much control over what we're supposed to be focused on. And that goes if you're for it or against it. There's no in it. There isn't a middle place in the media except for the very smallest, smallest voices and the tiniest little outlets because everything else, let's just say it, is controlled. 
So if it's controlled, you're not going to hear this harped on week in and week out, or people will go right back to what it, whatever it is that we're being told is a problem that we should look at that. But I, my foray into the foundation area makes me think, goodness, you know, if, if everyone, even if just a handful of those of us who are interested, just pick a non-governmental organization or a foundation or one of the clearing houses that decides who's going to get money or where the money go, you know, at a university level that's received money from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation or the Carnegie Endowment or et cetera, et cetera, because there are more than 8,000 foundations. That was as of 2020. There, who knows? There could be 10,000 of them. But of that number, I'd say at least 1,000 have very, very, very deep pockets. And if we just said, let's, you know, let, let's just keep this one on the burner. Let's not turn away from it. I don't know. I'm not saying anything could uh, could be done because money is powerful and ancient. But it's the only thing that's worth. It's politics isn't interesting. It, it changes nothing. No, it, it doesn't. And I I think money in in that sense. I mean, money's nothing to to these people that have these <laughs> big influences. Well, these big foundations like uh, Bill and Melinda Gates. It's not it's not the money that they're actually after at the end of the day. It's the influence. You know, they they right. use the money as the tool to get the influence so they can have yeah. the power. That's, that's the point. Right. And, you know, we I, I mentioned the uh, I'm just going to go to the page of Anna Harvey because I mentioned to you the Social Science Research Council that Worms are said in this book from 90, 1958 was such a problem. And so here's Anna Harvey. She's the president. And I gave you her creds before we started. She's the professor of politics, affiliated professor of data science and the affiliated professor of law and the director of the Public Safety Lab at New York University and co-director of the Criminal Justice Expert Panel. Now, the Public Safety Lab is interesting. I, I haven't been able to spend too much time looking at it, but it is interesting because, again, this is taking foundation money and using, here it says right on their website, we use the tools of data science and social science to support communities' efforts to improve both equity and efficiency in public safety outcomes. I just can't stand the way these goons talk. It's painful. The academic That's the public, speak is just, it's, uh, it's, it, it just grinds my teeth. It's mm. just, it's awful. I can't stand it. And I'm not going to read you the paragraph again that I read there, but she, in the public safety labs, prosecutorial reform initiative. You find language, I just boiled it down to the essence, but basically the gist of the research was if we don't prosecute people for misdemeanors, it's it, it reduces by a large margin. They gave 53% reduction in the likelihood of a new criminal complaint and a 60% reduction in the number of new criminal complaints over the next two years. And then it goes on and on. But what this is saying, in other words, what this great lab out of NYU has decided is that if they don't prosecute misdemeanors, then we're going to have less crime. Because um. the people who get... Pro <laughs> <laughs> well, and surely there'll be less crime on the books since less is being right. prosecuted. But, yeah. but you know, her, the logic of this is 
is that by prosecuting a criminal, I'll call him that, or just prosecuting someone for a misdemeanor, you make that you be, you harden their criminality. The system actually makes it likelier that they will commit another crime. So by not prosecuting misdemeanors, you're making less criminals. That's how the system works. And then I skipped over to the other thing that she's affiliated with, which is the so-called. There's, there's a lot to unpack there, just in that. There I'll is. Continue, but <laughs> well, the, the, the insanity I of to these just, people is just—it's legion. Yes. Well, I, I mean, this I only did while we were doing sound check. I just clicked on that other link there, which is the Criminal Justice Expert Panel, and it's enormous. I haven't counted it up, but there's got to be at least 100 experts on that panel from different universities, including international, but they're all over the map. They're Harvard. There's London School of Economics. I'm just kind of scrolling through it. This is one. uh, I don't know. Oh, that will be Peru. Uh, So, you know, in other words, it's a global thing. They're all academics. And I thought to myself, if you just followed one of these people, here's a woman from the assistant professor of economics at Rutgers University, and she got her PhD from the University of Chicago. If you just took this one so-called expert and followed the money at Rutgers, in other words, what foundation money comes into Rutgers And then how does that dictate what is taught at Rutgers? And then you go back to where she got her PhD, University of Chicago, and do the same. I just happened to know, because I was looking into the Aspen Institute Lifetime Trustees, that the University of Chicago is going to be getting a lot of money from the Crown and the Pritzker families, their Chicago families. So they'll be shaping the curriculum, they'll be shaping that. There's no way that people endow to the tune of millions and millions of dollars an an institution, a university, etc., and not expect that their voice has sway. Of course they do, and big sway. Yeah. Well, I, one of those two people, it was either Crown or Pritzker, I don't remember whom, which one it was, but one of them said, we look as carefully at the institutions that we endow as we do at a business that we're going to buy. We want to know if it's a, a food business, for instance, we want to meet the dishwasher. So they're telling you right there, that is the kind of control they exert when they spend their money. And that's just two families who are trustees of one institution But every single one of these 100 experts with their legal expertise, they are coming from big, huge foundation money. Uh, I'll have to, over the next few minutes, kind of search for a place here where Wormser is talking about how it can't be otherwise, you know, that the, you know, he's talking about, he, he gives in the case of, in this book, he gives the case of a dissident professor, a social sciences professor who didn't swing the way that the majority of the um, professors, they don't, they, he didn't get in line with foundation money. And I believe this is in the fifties. I think he was at the university of Pennsylvania and he was told, and it was pretty widely publicized at the time. He was told by the university you will never become a full professor here. 
because of your stance on things. Yeah. I've heard similar stories so, of other of other academics. They yeah. one in particular uh, I heard this uh, this gentleman was in graduate school and mm-hmm. not related to the foundations or maybe it is because they seem to as we were talking in prep they seem to have a um, <clears throat> a left slant if you will because of yeah. the agenda that academia follows but this individual was told in graduate school because he just he wanted to become a history teacher that's all he wanted to do you know a high school <laughs> history teacher while he was in graduate school they said his colleagues said look if you want to go anywhere in the academic world, then you're going to have to become an, an out-and-out Marxist because mm-hmm. that's what we need you to do is we need you to teach the next generation of young revolutionaries. He said, look, I'm here for my graduate degree and I, I just I don't agree with that. You know, I'm sorry, but they, they initially took his his silence as saying that, you know, he agreed with their standpoint when, in fact, he got to a certain point where he says, look, you know, I just don't ideologically I don't I don't agree with you at all. And I'm mm-hmm. not going to to go along with that. They essentially they ruined that man's career. He's yes. never he's never become a teacher. He was he was never allowed to uh, to become um, you know a publisher or anything like that. He's had to publish his own books on a lot of occasions because the big publishing houses won't touch him. That's what they do is they they just they blackball you for lack of a better term if you don't go along. Well, they absolutely do, and um, that what. I, I wouldn't say that the author or anybody in front of the Reese committee was justifying why an academic goes down this path, but he did say a, a dissident professor as this one, as an assistant professor, associate professor, he is trying to raise his family and support his family on the income of a laborer. And I, I'm not putting down laborers, you know, but what I'm saying is you're not going to make enough money to support four children with any kind of ease or comfort at all. And then you're looking at your colleagues who have all said, uh, well, I'm going to kind of get my head in line with whatever the foundation money wants me to be pushing. And those people make full professorship and then they get their books published and their papers peer reviewed and published and they have an amazing career. and become public intellectuals and et cetera, et cetera. I do have one question you, mm-hmm. through, through all of this. Uh, and this this goes to another big foundation, that which I'm I'm almost positive it's probably going to be in that book. It has to be uh, the Rockefeller Foundation. I'm oh, assuming. yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. And, and, and in fact, the Rockefellers, I mean, they make a big point in mm-hmm. this book about talking about the fact that the Kinsey Report was funded by Rockefeller money. Mm-hmm. Well, the only question that I had was, um, I remember that uh, David Rockefeller specifically, I, I don't know about his father, John D., but David Rockefeller specifically, when he was running the foundation, he would give money to the university in whichever one it was. They gave it a whole bunch of universities over the, over the years. But whenever they would have their initiatives set up within the university themselves, David Rockefeller would personally go to these universities and they would already have the students picked out that they wanted to recruit mm-hmm. before they got to any kind of graduate type of thing, you know, before they ever got to the point where they were like uh, in their final years or they were going to go on to uh, pursue more education or anything like that. That's how they used to recruit them. David would sit down with them, say, at like a lunchroom or something like that, and they would have conversations. And I'm assuming that this is how they would follow with all the other foundations. I'm assuming this is how they would follow their recruitment. They would get their their key people in places where they thought they would have the most influence and, and bring them up 
under their tutelage through the whole the whole thing through their academic careers or academics and then on to, into their careers? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, that was another interesting thing about some of the low-level activities of the Aspen Institute was how many different types of young leader programs and young leader fellowships they had so that, you know, it didn't matter whether you were looking at the college level because they focused on endowing colleges rather than universities that get plenty of money from other sources. But they they focused on middle school and high school endowments and college endowments. So that's just one thing. That's education. Then they had um, young business leaders, young entrepreneurs. What was most interesting was the young was the security uh, fellowship, the young security fellowship. Almost young seems like a, a, a early. Yeah, it almost seems like an early uh, alpha test, if you will, to use a, a technology term. It almost seems like an early alpha test of the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leader Program. Yes, I, I, I think so. I think it works. You reminded me, though, I'm going to segue just a little bit into a book called Goodbye, Good Men that was published in the early 2000s, maybe 2002 or so, um, because you were talking about recruitment and how you slant an institution in a certain way. But Goodbye, Good Men was about how the there was an active recruitment program in the Catholic Church so that only people, only young men could get into seminary who were liberal. Interesting. You know, uh -huh. we were, at what, around what time was this? You said the book was published in 2000. When were the, they referencing? The Bush, well, I think it goes all the way back into the 50s. Again, this was another right. one that... Yeah, I, if um, I had to guess, I would say that would be about right. But that because yeah. that's when the foundation started to take off, uh, was right now, after uh, the, uh, It the may war. not have been... It, yeah, I, I, th I think it went that far back. Now, Alan read this book and he talked to me about it a little bit. I haven't read it. But I'm looking at a quote here. This is somebody that says, for those of us who were in seminaries in the 1970s and the 1980s, the book has the sure and certain ring of truth to it. But one of the things that Alan told me about was that there was the, one of the reasons why this book got written was a woman whose name I, I don't know. I can't recall. I can't find it. But she was kind of like the, the school marm, the Catholic mother, if you will who had a very liberal mindset, and she had some kind of an experience which made her realize what she was doing, well, she thought it was wrong, and so she stopped. And I, I think it was her story that the, the author, Michael Rose, got a hold of and used that as a, a departure point for his own research. But she said that she actively looked for a certain mindset and encouraging a young man, whether he had a vocation or not, because that's what the Catholics say. You have a vocation, it's a calling, it's a calling from God, right? But you've got to have different mentors. And this woman's job was to give, provide a kind of a mentorship to these young men. And she actively weeded out young men who had tr really traditional values. So yeah. they ended up, and Michael Rose makes the point that what you had from, you know, probably the post-Vatican II, and Vatican II, that was the very early 60s, so what you had from post-Vatican II was quite intentional selection of men who were homosexual. 
You know, this has been a, a growing problem within the Catholic Church for, I want to say, the better, at least the better part of two decades. You've been starting, well, I'm not, I'm, I'm sure it goes back further than that, as you're saying, but publicly, you know, they, they do their best within the Catholic Church and the Vatican to, to shield themselves from these types of scandals. But it's starting to um, protrude to, to the actual surface now, mm-hmm. and it's everywhere. You know, and I, I genuinely, and, and I said this many, many years ago, over ten years ago now. I genuinely feel sorry for the average Catholic. You know, I, that that doesn't agree with us. You know, that, that doesn't have anywhere to go. I remember when they picked uh, Ratzinger, so not not this guy, not Francis, but mm-hmm. his predecessor. I mm-hmm. remember when Jean Paul II. I remember when he when he passed. Uh, I was here and I was watching it on the television at the time. You know how they go through the whole thing and they've got the the smoke and, you know, the black smoke and the mm-hmm. white smoke that comes out. You know, the, the cardinals go in and lock themselves in until they actually come to a decision. I remember at the time Anderson Cooper, your CIA extraordinaire <laughs> in the media. <laughs> I, I remember him. He was on the ground in St. Peter's Square uh, on CNN because being outside the U.S., that's really the only news media that you can really get that in BBC. Mm-hmm. But I remember he was there. And I was watching it at the time. How can you work in at the time? You know, we're talking 10, 15 years ago. You're working in politics when you're just literally there covering who's going to be the next pope. So at the time, CNN didn't really have too much of a um, uh, a slant in that direction when it came to religion. They kind of kept their nose out of it. But we've changed so much that now they do. But I remember him interviewing people on the ground there in St. Peter's Square. And I remember them saying at the time that I hope that the cardinals and I hope that the Vatican will choose a progressive pope, one that endorses Mm -hmm. the progressive ideas and the progressive norms of the new era and the up and coming generation. Mm -hmm. They chose Ratzinger and Ratzinger, you know, the German guy, he was not that. Um, And then Mm -hmm. he went and retired because of health reasons. Oddly right. enough, he's he's still alive. And then now we have this pope and this pope who I've heard on many occasions called religious, deeply religious people have called him Lenin's pope because of how left leaning he is. But this has been something that they've tried to subvert the Catholic Church with for quite a long time. And it's interesting to hear that this is going back into the roots that you're talking about, how they used to recruit, because you got to take it at that level to start it, don't you? You can't do it from the top down. It has to be from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it does. Ratzinger passed away. Did he? I must have missed that. Yeah. Um, he passed away in December. But what is interesting, oh, okay. here's why. You, it. It, it, this is why you missed it. Well, first of all, how long was he retired um, in poor many health? Years. Uh, many, many, many years. Many years. Right. Yeah. So that, that really wasn't what happened, I don't think. But he did pass away. And there were a lot of Catholics. I talked to a few who were just outraged at the way that his funeral was handled. I don't remember all of the indignities that occurred, but evidently when a pope passes away, it's quite a... Yeah, it's a big thing. Memorial, it's a, really it's a big, big thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. And there were there were several articles that were written. I didn't read them. I only talked to people that mentioned the fact that protocol was not followed. He was not given the kind of funeral that every other pope has received. It was just kind of dismissed. He was snubbed. His passing was snubbed. And and therefore, it would be easy to have missed it. Yeah, I, I don't remember seeing that at all. Um, yeah. That's 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, again, like I said, I think that the Catholic Church had been subverted a long time ago, uh, and it's not uh, its not just the Catholic Church. I think it's Christianity in, in general. I mean, we've been seeing that, especially over the last uh, three to five years, uh, respectively. We've been seeing that. Uh, I played something here a few weeks ago. Uh, they're doing this, um, instead of the Lord's Prayer, they're now doing the Sparkle Creeds in church, which is the, (laughs) I'm not joking. This is like the whole inclusive LGBTQ plus two, four, seven, nine, X, Y, R, Z, Z, any of that stuff, right? That's what we're doing in in churches now is that as opposed to praying for uh, the living God. And then you have people like Governor Kathy Hochul of New York who stand up there at these mega churches with her vaccinated necklace on <laughs> telling you that you need to be one of her disciples and one of her apostles. <laughs> you know, this is uh. it, it's it's cringeworthy. It's it, the whole thing is just awful. But, you know, again, like you said, it goes back to big money, big influence big foundations. Well, see, the the interesting thing, what I think is interesting is what Bernays said when he was talking about how you get an agenda, how you make a change occur. He said, you don't need to start an organization. There's no need to start a new organization. You simply take over existing organizations. And I think that that's one thing. Um, Unfortunately, I cannot recall the name of a book that it was it was a long researched document is probably a better way of putting it across that was done by some Catholic priests in the late 50s, early 60s, around the time of Vatican II. And what they were trying to show, what they were trying to bring to the attention of other priests, the way that the church had been infiltrated and was taken over. And of course, they were marginalized. The book, uh, they, they were trying to show connections to Freemasonry, all the different kinds of organizations that were having undue influence on the church. That's one example. And another thing that I was thinking about when I was looking at the Aspen Institute, it always kind of had this modern, let's try to change the direction of culture by celebrating modernism and modern architecture and modern art and modern music and so forth. When it was started by Walter Pepke and his wife from Chicago in 1949, and I haven't been able to dive into the historical research there, but what I now see, this is a gut perception that I haven't been able to back up, but I can't see the continuation between Walter Pepke and 1949 with celebrating modern architecture to the lifetime trustees where it stands right now in 2023 with, say, Henry Kissinger as a lifetime trustee and much of the focus of their real work being on international geopolitics. That didn't really look like what Walter Pepke was doing in 1949. You see what I mean? So take over an existing organization. And I think that's what you see across the board if you're looking at um, religion, churches, nonprofit organizations. You, you can see a kind of a shift that's decades old, but there is a shift to a certain direction. And that direction, I would call it leaning way to the left, if we're going to look at it left-right, or international or global. Now, here's, here's so, an interesting... 
Yeah, here, here's an interesting question, right? And again, this is one that we can always, maybe you have an answer to this, maybe you don't, but or we can speculate. There's always an end point to one specific agenda that anybody puts out, right? So if you're going to take over uh, these organizations, you know, if you're going to infiltrate an organization to take it over and influence it and get it to where you want it to go, what's the end point with all of this? If you're going to take over modern art, what's the end point? If you're going to take over governments, what's the end point? So we're going to hit an end point and all of this is going to have to come to a convergence. So in, in their opinion, right, by taking over all of this and having all of this power and influence, what is the end point? What's the end result apart from just full control over everything? Well, I, I mean, I think full control over everything, that might be the simplest way of saying that that is what the end point is. But um, I remember one time somebody was in a way goading Alan and asking him, oh, what do you think about the New World Order? Kind of mocking like, a, you know, this is a conspiracy theory, right? And Alan said, well, which new world order because there is always a new world order and i think that that is something that we can lose sight on like put too much attention on the end game or the end result because the gradual changes over time when the changes become significant enough then you are already in a new order so to take the catholic church as one example it doesn't really matter what the end game is. How long has it been used? We know that the de' Medici family was in there. You know, there's all there are periods of the most grotesque abuses within the Catholic Church, and I don't want to open that particular can of worms. But you're talking about an organization that has been used over and over and over down through time, as any big organization is. So I think it just plays its part for a little while. And then I don't know that you could say that it resets exactly, but the next infiltration or the next gradual move happens. In other words, an institution, the Catholic Church has been on the go for an awful long time now. So an institution will exist as long as it has any kind of usefulness in moving us along. So I, I, to me, I think of it more as always being herded, always being herded into the new pasture, and then from there to the new pasture, and from there. And and you're probably pretty close that total, total control is is what's being sought. Mm -hmm. And on that point, I would like to play this clip. As you say, it just, it, it gets to a certain point, and then the agenda carries on at another point. So when you say New World Order, well, that could mean a lot of things. I agree. Because there's always, as you say, there's always a new world order. If you remember, George Bush Sr. used to stand up there in his State mm -hmm. of the Union addresses and used to say, look, now we can see a new world order emerging. Well, take this into account pre-COVID with Klaus Schwab and Henry Kissinger. Dr. Kissinger, our time, uh, our satellite time is running out. What wonderful opportunity to conclude our week here with such uh, concrete proposals and ideas of how we can really create, I would say, a new world order. And how many times has his mentor, Dr. Kissinger there, how many times has he himself said that? On how many occasions? I lost count over the years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. An interesting thing, an interesting aside about Bush Sr. Uh, that with the couple of mentions of New World Order is that he also talked about 
a thousand points of light and that is the name of a family charity now and a thousand points of light is really all of the different organizations this is a it's kind of masonic speak if you will for you're going to have your culture changed you're going to be moved along by a thousand points of light and they are the guiding forces the guiding institutions and organizations that point you know that kind of steer us in the in the the so-called right direction okay here's another interesting question i asked you what the end point was and you gave a pretty good answer i always get confronted with this whenever i present something to somebody that is a problem they always say bring me a solution and I agree that these institutions are a problem. We've looked into these things. I, I've looked into another as aspect that I, I hope you're going to look into, and I'm going to look into the one that you're doing. So we're kind of comparing notes and, and we're going to swap literature. But what is the solution? How do we address this? I guess, well, I guess the first part is we have to address it. I think that's, that's like the icebreaker, if you will, is we have to recognize on not just a national scale, but an international scale that these institutions are a problem. And then how do we rid ourselves of them? Well, that's two questions, two very, very different questions. It is. Um, but I mean, I guess the first <laughs> one is more the first one is more of a of a, a beginning part of a solution. I guess it wasn't really a question, but we recognize that they are a problem. We have to recognize as in we have to to understand that these institutions are a problem first and foremost, and people have to be made aware of the fact that they exist. <laughs> and then, well, then we have to address them. Yeah, I, I was going to make a little joke and just say, well, just picture me dressed in rags and I'm holding a placard that says, repent, the end is nigh. <laughs> I suppose that's one way of, of addressing it. Yes, the, the end is nigh and the sky is going to turn to blood and, and it's all over. And yeah, but I'm just I'm just kidding because I, I, I don't really ascribe to that thinking because, hey, for each and every one of us, the end is always nigh. So uh, to me, that is the, 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 the solution, if you will, is that on an individual level, it's up to an individual level, uh, an individual person to do something, to do anything with what they learn. And I think, you know, people can become overwhelmed and just and they can say, well, it's just me. I'm just one voice. I don't have a platform or what I don't know enough. That's a big uh, I'll just call it a cop out. I don't know enough. You know, basically, whatever, you know, wherever you've arrived at, that's the starting point. And I'm not suggesting that you go out and scream about it at the top of your lungs, but it is an inward exercise. People have to look at themselves in the mirror and say, okay, I've had a part in this, even if my part was only being asleep to it. And now that I know what's going on, now that I'm aware of it, what changes do I make within myself and my own life so that there's something that I can do? And those can be simple little things like Maybe you're going to watch a little bit less sports so that you can spend a little bit more time researching this so that, you know, if a little fire gets lit under you, you're able to share what you know. I think that these things, I don't really know that there is a simple or a simplistic answer to what do we do. But the, the starting point seems to be you've got to be focused on the right problems, 
the right enemies. You know, if you think your enemy is Joe Biden or Donald Trump or, you know, Rishi Sunak or whoever you think, you're, whoever you're pointing the finger at, you've got to find the right enemy and then dig in. Now, the hard part is the second question, which is, can our efforts do anything about this? Because you're talking about that I know of three congressional committees that were held just on foundations alone. And in Wormser's book, he mentioned several other books that were written about it. So the problem has been exposed. The beauty of exposure is that you can always cover it back up. And that's the system that we're in is quite complete. So it allows us to keep covering it up. We don't, you know, don't look at that. Go back to politics. Don't look at that. Go back to the latest crisis. Don't look at that. Go back to the Middle East. Don't look at that. Look at Russia. Look at China. You know, whatever. And I think it's a matter of saying, no, I'm like a dog with a bone. I know what's going on. And in my small way, I will do something. You know, all the books that I that I read and all the reports and things that I, I read in manners of crime, right, or organized crime or political crimes or, or terrorism or any, any of that stuff, right? These are these are documents and, and these are cases that have been brought to the highest levels of our elected officials, right? <laughs> Use that term very loosely, elected officials. These are reports and facts and figures that have been presented to our Congress where they're supposed to be heard and action is supposed to be taken. Mm-hmm. I've got documentation of, of the criminal activity that has taken place on an international scale with multiple names being named and documentation being entered into the congressional record. And it's there. The problem is, is what you said, is it's exposure and it just gets covered up. The common theme, and I was telling this to um, uh, one of our other guys the other day, the common theme that I'm finding when I do this research and I look back into you know the congressional record or, or something or, or whatever, the common theme I find between all of these people that put these reports and everything together that make them publicly available, and nearest I can tell, I, and I've looked for the connections between the authors and the people that do the studies and, and the analysis and everything else, and I, I can't find any other than maybe they might know each other that we're not purviewed to in, in passing or something, or maybe they've both attended one of the same institutions, but that doesn't really necessarily mean anything. But all of them seem to share a common theme when they put these things out. And they say, we have to put this to the general public because the people at the policymaking level clearly are not and will not do anything about it. They believe that it falls, the responsibility falls upon we the people to educate ourselves to this problem and then put pressure on that system to be able to do something. But I'm not and, sure and, that putting the pressure on, given what you've been discussing tonight, I'm not sure putting the pressure on will even do anything. Or maybe they would out of you know the sake of politics and public image or something. But I think that would be the extent of it. Well, I think then, you know, we return to the problem, the, the sad problem of the human condition, because that's absolutely right. Bernays knew that. He felt that his job as a propagandist was to get people to think the right way, to behave in the right way, because that was the only way that a democracy could work, is if people way above the democratic uh, mob were telling the people how they needed to think, and in other words, then how they needed to vote, what they needed to be concerned about. And the trouble with human nature, the sad condition of humans, is that they're, as Alan Watt pointed out repeatedly, egocentric or egocentric. I'm okay, Jack. 
And if you can't get beyond I'm okay, Jack, then we can't move collectively an inch, not even a little bit, because there has to be some righteous indignation within yourself. You have to start there and say, it isn't acceptable to me what's being done to so-and-so about such-and-such over there. Whatever it is that, I don't want to say manipulates you emotionally, but whips up that righteous indignation that you say, no, that's not okay. And people don't want to do that because they're comfortable. They can go home. They've got their, you know, their computer. They can play games. They can drink a beer. They can watch sports. They, you know, whatever they are into that makes them feel comfortable as long as they're okay, Jack. And that's another thing that Alan would say. Oh, you know, people say they're waking up. No, most of the time they're reacting. They're saying, oh, this isn't acceptable to me. (laughs) Yeah, we saw that during COVID, didn't we? Yeah, Yeah, we saw it during COVID, yeah. Look, Mm -hmm. just tell me what I need to do to get back into the ballgame. A shot? Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, here, I'll roll my sleeve up. You know, and that's that's it. I'm like, as long as they're okay. Yeah, and like I'm, I'm looking at all this, and I'm like, do you people know how to say no? Is that even enter your mind? A simple word, N O. Do you know how to say no? No, they don't. I know they they don't. They they don't. They comply and comply. And we're so well studied. They knew that we would. You know, Johnny. I know that we're about to run out of time, and you're about to tell me that. But we have failed to talk about the most important story. Of the last week. Okay. All right. Lay it on me. Was it was it the Obama uh, chef thing? No, I no? didn't even hear about that. No. Oh, goodness. Tell, tell me. They, tell okay. me. Okay. All right. All right. You know that the Clintons have a string of bodies behind them. Yes. Everybody <laughs> winds up dying somehow, people, right? People who got it, they got Arkansas-ed. Yeah, that. Yeah. The, the the latest one, I think, was the uh, the guy that was found with an tied to a tree with an electrical cord wrapped around his neck, a shotgun blast, center mast, and it was ruled a suicide, but there was not a shotgun found. Oh. And okay. he was one of the, yeah, he was the Clinton Epstein guy that got him into the White House like six times. You know? But anyway, yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's it, the Daily Mail did, I think, four or five different pieces on it, but it, it doesn't uh. matter. The Obama thing, they found a body right next to the shoreline of the Obama residence in Martha's Vineyard. And it just it, so happened. Wait, wait a second. Before you finish the story. Uh-huh. Aren't the Obamas worried about rising sea levels? Yes, there is that, but they keep buying these yes. lavish beach. properties right there. They're they're building their Hawaiian mansion right there on the beach. It's strange. It's, uh, okay. All right. So they found a body. They found a body. Yes, in eight feet of water. Okay. This individual that they found, uh, again, I'm sure there's no connection here, was the personal chef of the Obamas at the White House when he wasn't on duty, taking part in fixing the meals and things in. The White House. He was swimming laps in the pool at the White House. He was an expert swimmer and he drowned in eight feet of water right there on there. Of course, again, I'm sure it's just a, a coincidence. The phone calls that were released by the dispatcher of Martha's Vineyard that day, they just so happened to be blank. Strange how that, that happens. That, yeah. yeah. It's like the, ca- the cameras weren't working in Epstein's yeah. cell. Yeah, that they day, just yeah. They weren't working that day. Yeah, it's just well, that's the trouble with technology is it's so amazing mm. and It is unreliable. And- <laughs> unreliable. <laughs> You just can't trust it. Anyway, I thought that's what you were going to to mention. But 
Maybe I missed it. Was it the COVID tongue? That, no, COVID. Yeah, that's that's a good one. You got to tell people what COVID tongue is, though. It's okay. It's apparently it's where you have altered taste buds because of COVID, and it could last up to three years. But don't worry. I'm assuming there's a drug or a shot that they're going to give you to fix that one. So who knows? <laughs> Anyhow, what's the story of the week that I missed? Well, this on one is this one is really important. Okay. Okay. All right. The era of global boiling oh, yes. has arrived. Yes, yes. I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up because I just so happen to have audio of that that I have not played this week. Okay. That we, can, that we can get to right now. Excellent. I am so glad you brought that up. Here it is. This <laughs> is the UN chief uh, whatever Gutierrez something or other. I'm not sure, but anyway, he's going to tell you that the era of global warming has ended. And for scientists, it is unequivocal. Humans are to blame. All this is entirely consistent with predictions and repeated warnings. The only surprise is the speed of the change. Climate change is here. It is terrifying. And it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended. The era, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable. The heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Leaders must lead. Leaders must lead. Well, we don't have any leaders there, Jack, <laughs> so I can't expect them to lead. The era of global boiling. Okay, mm -hmm. the headline across the UK mainstream media this week has been literally that Europe is, is like unlivable because the heat mm -hmm. is just so bad. That has been their headlines. So let me tell you, I am in the heart of mainland Europe, okay? I'm, I'm mm -hmm. right smack dab in the middle of it. I've had to wear a coat three days this week, and it is yes! snowing. It is snowing two hours south of me. And they can't explain. Johnny, I'm. I was gonna. I was going to mention that to you because I was talking to somebody from Germany yesterday, and he said it's cold. It's freezing <laughs> it's here. Cold. It is cold. <laughs> I'm telling you. I stepped outside the other day, and I said, I turned straight around, and I said, I got to get a coat, and I had to dig my my coat out of the closet, and I had to wear it for three days. And then I saw that that it was snowing. You know, a couple hours south of me, and I'm like, you kidding me? They had to get the snow cats out to plow the streets. Uh, well, see, somebody gave me a heads up on that article and they made the funny comment that, you know, of course, it's man-made, man-made, man-made. Right. But we supposedly had an ice age umpteen years ago before there was ever any CO2 that was man-made. Yep. And then there was some kind of a heat event that followed the ice age, which was radical enough to melt all that ice. And that predated so-called man-made, you know, global warming CO2. Yeah. It's just so crazy. And then you mentioned Germany that he did. and But this fellow who told me about the story said that he had heard stories of how freezing it had been in parts of Italy, including some ice scene formed on lakes and so forth. So I was looking up Italian news today and they said storms and wildfires kill seven in Italy as extreme weather continues. Now, they've had hail and storms and some really cold weather, but it followed hot weather. So they're talking about how people were killed in Sicily. That's way down south over um, extreme weather, which they're saying is global warming that's causing the, these kinds of extreme changes to occur. 
I was uh, playing a clip earlier in the week of one of the co-founders of Greenpeace. I think his name's uh, Moore. I, his last name's Moore, I, I believe. Anyway, it's a side issue. But he was presenting the ice core samples that we've taken that are conveniently ignored by the peer-reviewed science that all the scientists mm -hmm. unequivocally agree that, you know, that, you know whatever. Mm -hmm. They conveniently ignore the fact that when he was going back like 3,000 years, and it shows that, you know, the warming period and the cooling period and the warming, it's like the markets, right? It's just, it works in a wave, right? It's like seasons. Mm -hmm. It works in a cycle. This is why we have seasons. It works in, in cycles like this. Going back, as you said, he, he specifically focused on the year 13 to 1600, which would have been the medieval warming period up until where we are now. Right. So mm -hmm. that was obviously that was long before the Industrial Revolution. But we are right where we should be in terms mm -hmm. of, of warming or cooling. According to these trends, about 150 years from now, if we're keeping with it, as we have for the last, I don't know, 3000 years, then 150 years from now. So around the year, yeah, 21, 20, 2200, somewhere along in there around that time, then we will be seeing a global cooling will be trending back down into an ice age, you know, a, a yes. mini ice age. So we'll, we'll yeah. be headed back down. But right now, we're just now starting to come off of that peak. So when the trend goes back up, you can actually see where in 2023, then we're starting to start to trend back down. So we are going to start getting cooler. We'll eventually pass the midway point and we'll drop down. But it's right where we should be. Because it's just mm -hmm. the it's the pattern of things. We're not paying any attention. None of these these peer reviewed uh, sciency stuff or or whatever that ever gets put out. They never mention the things that go against any of what they push on people. They mm -hmm. never they never mention any of the objective science. It's always the subjective truths that they focus on. Absolutely, because that's an agenda. It isn't science. I I was I, when I wanted to mention that today. I looked up just to see what, uh, if anything at all, was being said in the mainstream about the coming cooling period, because I'm with you. There's no doubt that, that you know, it'll be when we're, we're gone, but that will come because that's how it works. And it said here, I found this article. It said in 1975, Newsweek predicted a new ice age. We're still living with the consequences. All climate change deniers needed was one article to cast doubt on the science of global warming. Well, you know, I'm sorry, whoever, you know, wrote that article, but it wasn't just one article in Newsweek. This is what all of, because at that time, it was thought that they would panic people by talking about a coming ice age or a little mini ice age. But what I think was neglected was exactly what you were just explaining. Before you get to the coming mini ice age, it gets a little bit hotter. It, it does. And, and I, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to laugh here. Well, I, I, actually, I guess I do. But I want to play this uh, just because okay. you brought this up. I, I want to play this. This is this is the voice of Leonard Nimoy. You know who Leonard Nimoy was? He was the, the guy oh, yeah, who played yeah. Spock on, on the original Star Trek, right? Well, they had him with a voiceover for this documentary that took place in 1977. And <laughs> see if you can find just a little bit of contradiction into what they've been saying since 1977. Take a listen to this. The worst winter in a century struck the United States. <laughs> cold ripped the Midwest for weeks on end. Great blizzards paralyzed cities of the Northeast. One desperate night in Buffalo, 
Eight people froze to death in maroon cars. Pat Bushnell was on the road that night. Traffic just absolutely stopped. I was afraid of being stuck in the car all night long with the uh, cold and the wind running out of gas. And then what? I think that if we had to go through a real bad winter, just like we just went through, I think we'd have to think about moving someplace else. Move where? The brutal Buffalo winter might become common all over the United States. Climate experts believe the next ice age is on its way. According to recent evidence, it could come sooner than anyone had expected. At weather stations in the far north, temperatures have been dropping for 30 years. Seacoasts long free of summer ice are now blocked year-round. According to some climatologists, within a lifetime, we might be living in the next ice age. <laughs> they failed to mention that this is where they used to be. Yeah. 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 No, that's it. Because you see an article like the one I just gave you the headline from, that they can get away with that because anybody who was paying attention to Newsweek in 75 was also paying attention to a documentary that Leonard Nimoy voiced in 1977. They're going to know that this wasn't just a one-off on one magazine. This was the narrative that was being given to folk at that time. And they've switched the narrative and they keep doing that. And I think they just count on, you know, people die out or, you know, grandpa gets addicted to porn yeah. and he has no wisdom to impart. But. <laughs> I remember we, we covered this. I want to say it was, it's been about a year or two ago. Uh, I have to go back and see if I can find it. But some outlet did a piece on the uh, the climate experts are zero for 43 or something on all of their climate predictions since the <laughs> early 90s. And they listed all of the like the UN and Prince Charles and Al Gore and all the all these people about all the predictions that they had made and and the dates that they put on them and how none of that ever happened. And of course, I don't. I don't know who released that, but whoever it was, it'll be characterized by the press as as something that was released by some right wing extremist hater. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I, I, I literally think it was one of the um, uh, one of the mainstreams. You know, I, I think it was one. Really? Of the, yeah. Wow. But occasionally, it's. I mean, I guess they're like a broken clock. Sometimes it's right twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what they are. I, yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, it's been uh, it's been fascinating having you on. Uh, would you like to tell us about your latest podcast before we call it quits? Well, the last two Redux that have gone up have been uh, touching on foundations and the Aspen Institute, and I did a little bit of writing on two pieces that um, that went along with that, and the real history that went that is going up tomorrow. I have to get my head right. This going up tomorrow. It all runs together, with, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's with Adam, who is a New Zealander who lives in Germany. And this is my second conversation with him. And I had a good time talking to him. And a week before last, I spoke with Michael in Sweden, which was also a second conversation. So it's kind of fun to have follow-up conversations. You get to know people a little bit better and you get more relaxed and so those have been interesting. And and then um, there's a lot going on there. I'm, we are three weeks into a new excerpt series. These are kind of a longer format of excerpts 
uh, on the series is called Experiments. And the one that went up yesterday was on Jose Delgado and his basically mind control of the bull. Do you remember that? I do recall that, yeah. Yeah, 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 so... They've been interesting. We, I had, we had the ash conformity test that went up the week before that. And then obedience to authority the, was the first episode, which was the Milgram experiment. So they're good. I don't know how long this is a, a listener, a longtime listener who's doing this. And I don't know how long she'll be on this particular series of experiments, but they're good. Well, um, if you're listening and you're on those experiments, I, just a listener request, uh, I would put in the MK Ultra program. I'm curious about it. Uh, you, there curious. have been several requests. There have been several requests and that is coming up. I have to awesome. say that's coming awesome. up. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Yeah. It has been a pleasure as always. I will see you in two weeks. Yes. Great. Yes. Look forward to it. Sounds good. As do I. Again, that is Melissa from CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. I encourage all of our listeners to get over there and take a look at the treasure trove of information that they maintain of the collected works of the late, great Alan Watt. And also her podcast, Real History with Melissa. That is available everywhere podcasts are sold. That will do it for us for today. I will see you in two weeks, Melissa. Thank you for being here today. Thank you to all of the listeners. God bless everyone. Have a great evening. 